In the journey of life, it's God's way or the highway. And tonight we're going to watch a man have an awful lot of trouble upon that highway. So let's start by reading these first six verses. I imagine this is a familiar story for a lot of you. Then the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan at Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was in great dread of the people because they were many. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, This horde will now lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to Balaam. But you'll forgive me if I call him Balaam tonight. The son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river, that would be the Euphrates River, in the land of the people of Ammah, to call him, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth, and they are dwelling opposite me. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. We arrive in chapter 22 at the final stage of our geographical outline, the plains of Moab, which is where we will remain until chapter 36 for all of the book of Deuteronomy and for the very beginning of the book of Joshua, the plains of Moab. The wilderness wandering has mostly come to an end. We are going to see in the next couple chapters the the final death throes of the rebellious generation. But as you can see, their camp, it says at Jericho, a better understanding of that would be opposite Jericho. They are where they're going to be before they cross. And we now actually change perspective in the story. We're no longer in the camp seeing what happens around the tabernacle. We're now looking through the eyes of the king of Moab. This is a man named Balak. And he was the Moabite king. You remember last week we saw that Israel had its first military victories. They defeated two Amorite kings by the name of Og, who was the king of Bashan, and Sihon, who was the king of an Amorite king in the territory of Moab. He had taken over parts of the land of Moab and Israel defeated him and took that land for themselves. So Moab, is, the king of Moab, has just watched their land that was theirs, that had been taken by Sihon, reconquered by a different kingdom. And now those people who are distant cousins of theirs, the Moabites were descendants of Lot, and of course the Israelites were of Abraham, they're watching these people set up camp right next to them. And he compares them to an ox that licks up the grass of the field. The, the land of Bashan was known for its cattle. Many passages in the scripture refer to the bulls of Bashan. And so perhaps Og was known as the ox or the bull. And now they've just beaten the big bull. He says, you know what, what bulls and ox do? They eat everything. And they're going to swallow up all of my land. So he plots with Midian, the elders of Midian. Midian seems to have been a collection of people groups that were more or less nomadic. Uh, which is why he's looking to the elders, not to the king of Midian. But they, they decide to plot together. Now, Mo, Moses had spent 40 years in the land of Midian. He had married a Midianite woman, but now the political scene has changed so much that now his people are a threat, and it's been 40 years, and so they're not so sure about this guy anymore. So they decide to summon a man named Balaam, the son of Beor. 
So that's, this is Balaam. You remember his story. From the city of Pethor. We are fairly certain we know where Pethor was. There is a, a modern-day city called Pitru, which is in Syria. And so this would have been to the north of the Promised Land, about 12 miles south of Carchemish. In the book of Daniel, we've been talking about how Nebuchadnezzar defeated Pharaoh Necho at Carchemish. So in that neighborhood up in Syria is where Balaam lived. It says on the river, which was the Euphrates River. That's the great river of that region. And Balaam is known to history. There was a piece of writing that was discovered, and I've placed it up there on the screen for you, in Jordan, the city of Sukkoth, which is in Jordan, which was formerly this area, part of the land of Israel. There's a, something called the Tel Der Allah. So the Tel Der Allah, there was writing, there was engraving that was discovered, telling a story about Balaam, the son of Beor, who gave a prediction from the gods and pronounced a curse. Now, this writing is from much later in history, the, the 8 or 900, 7, 800s BC. But the point is this guy was known and it is generally acknowledged that this was a real person, that he was a soothsayer. He was very similar to a, a witch doctor or a wizard, somebody that people would go and pay him to curse people. You see that in verse 6. They say, come curse this people for me because they're beating up all my enemies and now they're living right next to me. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed and he whom you curse is cursed. And you hear that and you're supposed to react and you're supposed to remember what God said to Abraham, which was, whoever blesses you, I will bless and whoever curses you, I will curse. Blessing and cursing is the domain of God. So we're going to see, all right, who is this guy? Now we read this and we think, how ridiculous to get somebody to come and curse you. But in this day and age, this would have been an incredibly fearful thing to find that they had hired Merlin the magician to come cast spells over their, their cities and over their towns. And perhaps there was more wisdom to that than we would like to admit. But as we study this tonight, here's how I wanted to look at it for our own selves. Like Balak, Balak is how I grew up saying it, we encounter situations where we see God's will starting to be worked out and we don't like it. God had told the children of Israel, I will drive out the people before you and bring you into a land flowing with milk and honey. Well, Moab realizes that means I'm going to have a very supernaturally powerful neighbor. And I don't know if I like that very much. So in, in our life, we have things where God expresses his will and we desire to go against it, to thwart it, to get something else out. And there are a few ways that we'll do this, how we will challenge God's will. Perhaps there's a sin that you would really like to commit. <laughs> I really would like to commit this sin, but God has said that it's, that it's wrong and I shouldn't do it. And the motivation for that is lust. And I'm not just talking about sexual lust, although that's very often exactly the case. It can be all kinds of lust, inordinate or inappropriate desire. God has said that Sex with a woman who is not my wife is wrong. Well, I really wish he hadn't said that because there's this woman whom I desire. Or God said that lying and cheating is wrong. And everybody else at my company is skimming off the top and they're buying boats and I'm over here trying to make ends meet. So I really wish God hadn't said that. We have a lust that we want to fulfill. So we start trying to find ways to get around it and justify it. Or perhaps there's a doctrine that you wish wasn't true. And this, the motivation behind that is pride. It's like, why did God have to say that? Usually it's people who are very educated, 
I'm not necessarily, maybe not even usually. So many people who's very educated, they say, well, I've learned an awful lot of things about life, and God disagrees with some of that, and God really isn't interested in how splendid another culture is. If they're not worshiping the true and living God, then it's nothing to be admired, and I don't know if I can look at the world that way. Or sometimes it's just people that are kind of full of themselves, and they think that my experiences are so deep that I understand life way better than other people do, and then God comes and says something else and you're not interested in that. I think of example of uh, the descendants of the Puritans in New England were given over to Unitarianism because they, they said, you know, the thing that's most important is human uh, progress and human development and this Protestant doctrine seems to be getting in the way of that and what is the Trinity anyway? One plus one plus one, three equals three. It doesn't equal one. So maybe we should just get rid of all that. And they did. It was pride. Or perhaps God's will for your life is just frustrating you. And like Balak, it's, it's just fear. You're afraid. You know what God wants you to do. Maybe he's got a call on your life and you'd rather do something else. Or maybe it's, it's just the circumstances around you, the hand of life that you've been dealt and it's making you afraid. And we would rather do something other than what God says. Let's just say at the beginning, it's foolish to resist God's will because he's stronger and smarter than you are. At the very least, he has access to more information than you do. This is something in the pastorate that, or in any kind of leadership, really, where you have to make decisions with more information than the people that you are leading. And they sometimes are not able to have access to that information. So somebody will say, why did you make this decision? Don't you know what's going on? And it's like, I know how it looks to you, but you're going to have to trust me. Well, I think you better explain yourself. I can't. It's not my information to share, but you're going to have to trust me. It's like that with God, but way more so. Psalm 2 says, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed word. There's Mashiach, his Messiah, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And is it, are there ever people in our society today who would rather just burst apart the bonds of God, cast away the cords of Christ? But he who sits in the heavens, verse 4, laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He says, you're not going to thwart my will. And that's the same psalm where he'll say, kiss the son lest he be angry. But we're still carnal creatures. We still try to get around God's will. So it's important for us to watch this story and see how it plays out in one guy's life so that maybe we can benefit from his example. Verse 7. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the fees for divination in their hand. And they came to Balaam and gave him Balak's message. And he said to them, Lodge here tonight, and I will bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam, and God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? And Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent to me, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt, and it covers the face of the earth. Now come, curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to fight against them and drive them out. God said to Balaam, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, Go to your own land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. So the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. So they send money to Balaam, which is what was done at the time. And he asked for time to consult with the Lord before answering. And we have to ask this question. How was this heathen on speaking terms with God? 
And that just kind of catches your attention. Wait a minute, this guy is not part of the land of Israel. How does he know Jehovah God? Well, the first thing to consider is we come across people like this in the Bible from time to time. Genesis 14, verse 8, we saw Melchizedek who blessed Abraham. And it says Melchizedek was the priest of the Lord. And we encounter a few others throughout the Bible who retained that knowledge of the Lord. And Balaam seems to be one of these. But I think while that is, of course, the case and is possible, I think it might be better to understand this passage like this. Balaam is told these people are here. We need to drive them out. We need to curse them. And he asks a little background information. Who are they? Where are they from? You know, he's kind of filling out the, the clipboard when you go to the doctor's office. If you're applying for a curse. And maybe he asks them, who is their God? What gods do they serve? And Balaam is fairly certain he can talk to any of them. And I, I think that's just something that is true. There are some people that are just more spiritually sensitive than others, and this guy was using it to make money. So perhaps it wasn't that he had a pre-existing relationship with God. Perhaps it was he heard about the Lord Jehovah and called upon him that night that he might speak to him. That seems to make sense to me. But in any case, do not consider Balaam as some long-lost prophet. At the very most, the Lord to Balaam was one God among many. But in any case, God appears to him, forbids him to go curse Israel. And he says, now you go tell them that. And that's what Balaam did. He said, the Lord spoke to me and he said, I'm not to touch them. They've already been blessed. So I can't go in and overrule almighty God. Moving on in our own application here. When we try to thwart God's will, when we try to go against what he wants the hard thing is, the testimony of God's word stands there, unblinking words on the printed page telling you what God's will actually is. So they say, well, we'd really like to hurt God's people. God says no. Very often you want to you do something, you want to, as I said, commit a sin. There's a life circumstance you'd like to change, whatever it may be. And you say, I'd like to change this. And there stands the Lord who does not change from age to age. And how do we know what God is? Well, how could we possibly know what he said? Well, people have been here for a long time. God's been speaking to us. We have the word. This is primarily the first thing. How God's will is revealed is the scriptures. They tell us what is true and what is right. We have a sovereignly ordained record and explanation of who God is and what he does. And we start with that. We start with what is true and right. So if you've ever come to me with a Bible question, if you've ever come to me with a counseling question, a moral question, you know how it goes. The first thing I'll say is, what does the Bible say? Let's start with the word. What passages in the Bible already speak to this issue? Sometimes it's very easy. Thou shalt not kill. You're going to have to get along with your neighbor. You can't, just, you can't just kill him. God was not okay with that. Sometimes it's much more serious. Well, you see, my wife just isn't the same person she was when we got married. I, I, I think I should just, I, I'm okay to leave her. God's okay with that. Well, Jesus said that if anybody divorces for any reason other than sexual immorality, he has committed sexual immorality. And even so, God hates divorce. And Paul told us it would be better to stay and try and work it out, even if something like that has happened. So, no, I'm not going to make you feel better about this. The scriptures. Secondarily, the testimony of the Holy Spirit if you are in Christ Jesus, the Holy Spirit dwells within you and you ought to get to know his voice. You can know the Lord. We should be comfortable saying things like the Lord told me. Now, don't put that in contradistinction to the word because the Holy Spirit has already spoken. 
So he's not going to add something else or something contrary. But most of the way that works is through your conscience. When you are regenerated in Scripture, the Bible tells us that the Lord awakens your conscience, that it's been cleansed from dead works. You start over, and things that didn't bother you before start to bother you. And this is not limited to the church, of course. The the world, the people have a conscience. They know what's right. You know, we are are not threatened by admitting that other nations and other great men who were not necessarily believers can arrive at a good knowledge of what's right and what's wrong. The only infallible answer is sitting right here. But people have a conscience. And most of the time, if somebody's asking you a million questions or if we ourselves have a bunch of arguments of why this is okay, it's because we kind of know it's not okay. (laughs) And the Lord's letting us know. Listen to your conscience, guided by the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, the church is full of wise people who can guide you. People that have known God for a long time, but even setting that aside, just other people. If you're only thinking in your own head about what you're going to do, and you're not talking to anybody else, the Bible says there is safety and wisdom in a multitude of counselors. Talk to a lot of people. There are people here that are older than you. People here that are younger than you. People here that have had different life experiences than you or the same life experiences. Talk to them. Listen, if everybody you admire tells you that something is a bad idea, don't do it. Now, are there cases where God's doing a new thing through you? Yeah, sure. That's the exception. The rule, though, is if all the good people are telling you stop, you should stop. Or go, as the case may be. Micah 6, 8 He has told you, O man, what is good. I mean, I could preach just that first half of that verse. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. I mean, there's a filter right there. If you want to do something, is this just? Meaning, is it fair? Is it just? Is it fair? To love kindness. Is what you're about to do something that can be characterized by love or kindness? Yeah, for me, that's not what it means. And to walk humbly, are you walking humbly with your God? Would you do this with Jesus in the car with you? In most cases, I think, of life, there are tricky situations, and we, we tend to focus on the exceptions in, in life and in philosophy and in art. We focus on the exceptions. But in most cases, God's will is clear. Or at the very least, the boundaries of what would be acceptable are clear. And you might have to make a brave decision within those boundaries. But it's, it's at the very least, there is enough information to get you started. And it is your responsibility to do God's will. Therefore, that entails you learning what it is before you start asking tricky questions. I've, I've had before, and this would happen quite often in the youth group, especially as the, the men, the young men, especially would get a little older, start thinking a little deeper. Maybe they find some guy on YouTube that really, you know, stretches their brain a little bit. And they'd come in with these theories, <laughs> these theories about life. And they're like, yo, this is what I think, man. And I'd be like, well, let's look at what the Bible says. You can't say that because of this here. And they go, Oh, I, I didn't know that was in there. And hey, no, no shame on you, except that you should have read it. Go find out what's in there. You know, if you believe this book and if you get offended when people holler about this book and, and cut up this book, have you actually read it? And I mean all of it. Do you know it well? And then if you have some tough questions, start asking tough questions. But more often it's a tough decision about actually doing it than it is actually figuring out what to do. So God has spoken to Balaam about what he's supposed to do, as he often does to us. Let's get to verse 15 now. Once again, Balak sent princes, 
more in number and more honorable than these. Think of a procession like from Aladdin. Prince Ali, mighty is he. That's how this culture worked. You're honoring somebody by sending this great parade of honorable people. And they came, verse 16, to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, Let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I will surely do you great honor. Hint, hint. And whatever you say to me, I will do. Come, curse this people for me. Don't you like this? Please come curse these people. But Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, hint, hint, I could not go beyond the command of the Lord my God to do less or more. So you too, please stay here tonight, that I may know what more the Lord will say to me. And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men have come to call you, rise, go with them, but only do what I tell you. So Balaam rose in the morning and saddled his donkey, more on her in a minute, and went with the princes of Moab. So Balak raised the price. He thinks that Balaam is driving a hard bargain. He thinks, ah, okay, this is, not, this is not bad, but if you, if you want me to do this, man, I need a bigger bag. You're going to need a couple more truckloads of gold and silver. And so he sends exactly that. He sends more impressive dignitaries. He sends more impressive processions. He's tempting the man. This is how prophets did business back then. And Micah and Amos, especially in the New Testament, Jeremiah as well, will blast the prophets of Israel for doing this, for doing it for money, for giving a good word when they got a good meal and a bad word when they got a bad meal. It happened and it shouldn't happen. It still happens to this day, unfortunately. And when Balaam hears this, he acknowledges God's sovereignty. He says, I can only say what God has told me to do. But he offers to pray again, which is interesting because does, is God going to be tempted by the amount of gold that King Balak has sent? He says, oh, listen, I already told you guys, God said no, but uh, let me ask again. Let me ask again, because worst case scenario, I'm no better off. Best case scenario, I'm going to get paid. So he's going to go ask God again. That kind of reveals his true motives here. And God speaks to him in the night again. And, and God tells him, basically, you can go. He gives him reluctant permission, you might say. And God will do this. Throughout the Bible, there are many instances of God allowing somebody to do what they want even though it is not what God initially wanted for them. The biggest example of, is of Israel choosing a king. He said, it's not going to work out for you. You're not going to like it. And they said, well, we want one anyway. Uh, there's many examples of this where the Lord allows someone to have their way. And this is what God is doing. He's not telling Balaam it's okay for you to go sin, but he's allowing him to take another step closer to sin, which God will do. And 2 Peter 2.15 totally confirms it for us. It tells us Balaam loved gain from wrongdoing. There's more money to be made in doing the wrong thing, so that's what I'm going to do. And later on, as, we, as the story unfolds, we will see that that's exactly what's going on in Balaam's heart. He's a hireling. He's a hireling. He's not actually trying to do the God's will. He's trying to manipulate the gods to get what he wants, which is money. And this is exactly what we do. When we are stopped by God's will, we want to thwart God's will, but there it stands and it says we can't. We start looking for loopholes, loopholes in God's will so that we can serve ourselves. We're looking for a little obscure half of a verse in the book of Ezekiel that tells us it's okay. 
loopholes so that we might serve ourselves. Not looking in order to do what God wants, looking for justification to do what we want. And I've got a good list of these kinds of loopholes that I have seen people go for. And the first one is exegetical technicalities. Exegesis is the study of scripture. It's trying, ex is like exit. We're trying to get meaning out of the text. So what people will do is, what does the Greek say? What does the Hebrew say? What are the different opinions on this verse? Is it possible to break it down in some way, maybe to rearrange the commas, maybe to reemphasize the verse so that it says it the way I want it to be? And people will read a very obvious verse and then try to draw the opposite conclusion from it. One of the classic ones, Jesus said, if anyone strikes you on the cheek, turn and let him hit the other one as well. I have heard that passage preached as justification to engage in self-defense. Now, I believe that the Bible allows you to engage in self-defense, but that's your text really for that? Turn the other cheek? When it says turn the other cheek, what it really means is hit his cheek as hard as you can. Exegetical technicalities. People will very often, I, I can't get too deep into this, but people will quote what they call technical terms. When he uses this, it's a technical term that has a special meaning that you could never know if you hadn't read my book, but it allows you to ignore this one. The other one is theological allies. You're not really interested in searching it out for yourself. You just want to see, are there some people that agree with me who have some letters after their names? Is there a pastor somewhere that teaches it this way? Is there a Bible college that puts out articles that teach it this way? And he said, well, you know, this pastor says that. This theologian says this. And to which I will always say, okay, but what does the word say? What does it? Well, he thinks it means that. Do you think it means that? Well, look at all these people over here. And the only reason you're going after that guy, you might hate that guy on everything else, but on this, he's on your team. So he says cursing's okay. So I like this guy. The other one is similar. It's supportive friends. You don't worry about what the Bible says. You just find a lot of people that will tell you it's okay and ignore the haters and just go for it. That's what you look for. I got to block everybody out that says I shouldn't say this. You know, what we hear this, you know, I don't want to make too much out of this, but people are like, every time I go home for Thanksgiving, mom and dad are always talking to me about Jesus. So you know what? They're toxic and I'm not going to be around them anymore. It's like, I'm only going to surround myself with people that think the way I do and love the things that I do. And groups of friends like that end up in serious trouble because no one is afraid to call anybody out. Oh, you know, my, my pastor, I talked to him about it. He says, I need to stay home and be faithful and submissive to my husband. I can't leave him for this other guy. Well, who cares what he says? He doesn't know you slay, queen. Do your thing. You get out there. Supportive friends. You say it loud. You say it often so that it drowns out the noise of reasonable people. Here's the other one, character flaws in other people. This one's really sneaky. This pastor said this, well, you know, that pastor smokes, don't you? So really, whatever he says doesn't count for anything. Oh, didn't that guy, didn't he used to believe in predestination? I thought we weren't into that. Well, you know, this guy over here, he doesn't agree with us on the end times. I, this, that's a real common one you'll hear. Somebody will give a message on love and peace and joy. And say, well, that guy, he doesn't even believe in the rapture. It's like, what, what does that have to do with what we're talking about right now? Character flaws. Well, my pastor yelled at his kid in the grocery store. So what does he really know about how I ought to live my life? Here's another one. Poor application of principles. You take a biblical principle and you apply it in the wrong place. 
The Bible says a man shall not lie with another man as with a woman, that such a thing is an abomination and that it is a mark of God's judgment upon a society. But doesn't the Bible say to love everybody? Well, yes, but it also says all this stuff. Yeah, but love, though. Love is everything. Love wins. This is love. And you, you, it's really hard to argue with that because it's such a poor argument. You ever have somebody that was arguing with you and they were making so little sense you didn't even know what to say? This, this is this thing here. You're taking a principle and you're applying it to the wrong situation. Extraordinary circumstances. Well, my life is so unique that the, the rules that have applied to everybody apply to me. You can't lie like that. Well, didn't they lie to the Nazis when they were hiding Jews in their house? Are you hiding Jews in your house against Nazis? Well, no, but it's hard for me to get through traffic to work on time, so I sign in with the time that I should have been there. But lying's okay sometimes. Not that time. Your circumstances are not that extraordinary. No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. You are not that special. Let that liberate you. Your life is not some high-stakes thriller, some big soap opera. It's just life. And most of the time, if not all of the time, you need to just do what the Word says. And here's the last one. This is kind of what Balaam did, whining to God. But I really want to, God. Can't I have a special dispensation from you to do this thing? Please, God, please, I want to do it. Can I please go? I won't curse them, but can I just go and, and maybe I can negotiate a price so that he'll let me bless them and I can still get paid? At the very least, it'll be a way to get out of the house and travel for a little bit. And I always liked Moab, and maybe I can make a new connection with these Israelites. Maybe they want me to curse Moab. So it's really a business trip, Lord. I'm not really, please let me do this. Sometimes people will whine not to God, but to me as their pastor, or you'll whine to each other, your home fellowship leader, your accountability partner, because you know that it's wrong, and that's the person telling you it's wrong, but you think if I can convince them, then I'll be able to, to go for it, and people will just whine and pester God. All of these things, they amount to nothing more to childish attempts to get our own way over what we know is right. 2 Timothy 4 verse 3 the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears. Scratch that for me, will you? It's really bugging me. It's something I want you to say. Really wish you'd talk more about the political situation. Really wish you'd talk more about false teachers. Really wish you'd talk more about this and that. Itching ears to suit their own passions. Having itching ears, they will accumulate. The language there is heap up. Make a big old pile of teachers to suit their own passions. Man, there is, a, there is a podcast and a blog for every idea you could possibly want today. If you want to find some online pastor to make you feel good about your sin, you can find one. Every heresy has its own apologist now. Every sin has its own champion now. Doesn't make it right. And we know that. But we try to find loopholes so when you are looking to find out what God says about a subject, make sure you are not just proof texting and trying to find if God agrees with you and trying to find a way to make his word agree with you. Verse 22 now. This is when the story takes an interesting little turn here. But God's anger was kindled because he went. God's anger is often compared to fire. It was kindled. And the anger of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary 
Now he was riding on the donkey, and his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. And Balaam struck the donkey to turn her into the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. And Balaam's anger was kindled and he struck the donkey with his staff. We'll pause right there. Now, verse 22 down to verse 35 has been accused of being an addition to the text because it is difficult to understand in some respects. I don't think they're that difficult, but people are always proposing various ways to chop up and ways they can claim to see the redactor's hand in the Old Testament. But I I think that without this, this whole story doesn't make any sense. The parallelism is broken down, among other things. But God grows angry with Balaam. Now, it's interesting in verse 22, it says, because he went. In verse 21, didn't God say he could go? So why is God angry? That he went. Well, it depends on how you translate this verse. The word for because is the Hebrew word ki. It means usually for, or it can mean because, it can mean thus. It is possible to translate it as he went, meaning along the way, Balaam made God angry. That doesn't seem to be the primary way to translate this. Uh, Perhaps he should have known not to go, even though God gave him permission to go. Or perhaps, and I think this is more likely, his attitude and his intention as he went were against the Lord. He had it in his heart. All right, stage one, God says I'm allowed to go. Now all I got to do is convince him to let me curse these people. And God saw that. Maybe he saw the way he was conducting himself, the way he was playing buddy-buddy, talking about the money he was going to make. And God saw that. I think many parents, we have given our children permission to do something. And then as we watch them go do it, we get angry and we're sorry we let them do it. And that is not outside the bounds of scripture here. So God's angry. And the angel of the Lord comes after him. The angel of the Lord is often a Christological reference because this this capital A angel of the Lord is very much identified with God himself. But he's got a sword drawn. We often see the angel of the Lord in that stance in the Bible. Joshua will see him that way. And he stands, it says, as his adversary. Little note that word adversary is the Hebrew word Satan, which is where we get the name Satan. Because this is not saying that the angel of the Lord is Satan. The word Satan means adversary. That Satan is the one who opposes and accuses humanity. So just a little note for you there. But here comes the angel of the Lord. And it seems that, don't think of the angel of the Lord just standing there on the road. Think of him like coming to take off Balaam's head with this thing. And that's why the donkey hee-haws and runs out of the way. Just very brief note as we move on. It's not the point of the message. But the heavenlies are very real. Angels and demons are very real. And we've got to stop being embarrassed to say those words. But only the donkey sees him. And she turns aside three different times. One time I went uh, horseback riding in Costa Rica. And this is one of those things where you pretty much sit on the horse. The horse would do the trail 20 times a day. They just kind of will go. But I had a really ornery animal sitting under me. And you know, when, when horses pin their ears back, 
That's the sign that they're angry. Mine had his ears back the whole time. And so did I, for what it's worth. As we're going down the road, and we're just going clip, clop, clip, clop, and they kept on trying to stop, and I had to keep digging my heels in, and you know, the guy like, oh, you're not going to hurt him, man. Just slap him. It's okay. And we're going. I'm trying. All the kids are laughing at me because this horse is way behind everybody else. And I'm just sitting there. All, as we're walking down the road, all these trees were hanging in the road. And he walks under these branches so that the branches start hitting me in the face. Now, I wanted to take a staff to that horse. So I can understand what's going on with Balaam. But Balaam here is actually going to be rebuked by the Lord. Proverbs 12.10 says, whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast. The Bible says you can tell if somebody's a good person or not by how they treat their pets. Just something to think about. Now, here's the danger. The danger is that there's an angel with a sword coming to take his head off. The danger of resisting God's will is that we make ourselves enemies of God. Spiritual protection is removed from you. Now, there are those that will claim, how ridiculous this is the kind of stuff that makes Christians really cringy to the rest of the world. You believe that bad things happen because of angels and demons. You believe that if you do the wrong thing, that God removes protection from you. That's ridiculous. But then it's the same people that want to characterize all of humanity as nothing but suffering and woe and misery. Well, I'm happy to tell you that the reason that is is because the world is not living under the rule of God. And there's only misery and danger to be found there. Which is why when we in the church want to be more like the world, James in chapter 4 verse 4 calls us adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that he said, the brother of Jesus said, friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Too many people want to claim God's blessings but live their life in such a way that God can only oppose them. God is not passive in the world. He actively opposes what is evil. But we want to come and we want to get our blessing. Never mind the fact that Jesus said things like, blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. We just want to say, blessed are those who come to church once a week, maybe take communion, and then go do whatever they want. But the farther down the road of sin you go, the more, just like with Balaam here, those walls are closing in. You notice how it's just getting tighter and tighter. First, there's a field to run off into. Then he can get around, but he's got to push his leg up against the wall. Now it's, there's nowhere to go, and it just lays down. That's what it's like, man. When you're running away from Jesus, everything's tightening in around you. And the thing is, we get angrier and angrier, like it's, like it's someone's fault or that it's even God's fault. But the answer is, you're walking contrary to God, and he can only oppose you. The more frustrated you'll become because Romans tells us the greatest judgment God can inflict on a person is to allow them to have their own way. Romans 1 tells us that. And God gave them up. He gave them up in the lust of their flesh. He gave them up in the so-called wisdom of their minds so that they became fools. They became depraved. Thessalonians tells us that the end time struggle, when it begins, the final seven years with the Antichrist and all those terrible judgments in Revelation, will begin with God removing a hand of restraint so that in a very real sense, the book of Revelation is not so much God doing things directly as much as he is just letting things go, just letting it happen. God's not going to allow dictators to be taken down anymore. He's not going to be allowed the worst of wars to finally be thwarted. He's not going to bring an end to the plagues. He's just going to let it go. 
And your own life can see that. So do you fear God? The donkey feared God and he was smarter than Balaam was. Do you fear God or are you a fool? Those are the options the Bible gives you. James 28, or sorry, Job 28, 28. He says, to fear the Lord and turn away from evil. That is true understanding. So many people that claim they're wise and now I've seen the light. I'm woke, I'm red-pilled. I can see, I understand what life really is. The Bible says, true understanding of life is to fear God and to turn away from evil. And Balaam is going to have to learn this in verse 28. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. And she said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said, you can talk. No, he didn't. Just too angry, I guess. He said to the donkey, because you've made a fool of me in front of all my rich friends. I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey? on which you've ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, no. <laughs> Funny turn here. God opens the mouth of the donkey. Now, perhaps it's like Acts 9-7, when everybody heard the thunder and saw the light, but they didn't hear Jesus' voice when Paul was on the road to Damascus. It could be that the donkey is hee-hawing, but Balaam can understand and so everybody thinks he's just having an argument with his donkey, like you do. You talk to your dog or your fish. Don't, don't lie to nobody. But the donkey points out, I've never done this before. This is out of character for me. Maybe that should have caught your attention, oh wise man that understands all hidden mysteries. Balaam was being warned, but he could not pay attention because of his same selfishness. What did Jesus say? Unless you become like little children, you will in no wise see the kingdom of heaven. So God goes, I'm going to warn Balaam, but I'm going to warn him in such a way that a little kid would pick it up, but the big bad prophet from Pethor won't pick up on it. You know, a little kid might go, I think your donkey is worried about something. Shut up, it's just an animal. And God goes, listen to the kid. Become like a little kid. I'm too smart for things like that. God loves us so much that he will allow us to be warned in our sin. As we're going the wrong direction, God will send warnings, and sometimes by very unlikely sources. Because sometimes we're not listening to the right ones. So God uses something else to get your attention. I think of Abimelech in Genesis chapter 20, when he took Sarah into his harem. And God sent what we believe was a venereal disease into him and all of his household to make sure that Sarah would not be violated. And Abimelech finds out through a dream what happened, and he rebukes Abraham. Pharaoh Necho in 2 Chronicles 35 warns Josiah. He says, I'm passing through your land. Yes, it's a violation of your territory, but I am way stronger than you. You better just let me pass or I'm going to take you out. And that warning was from the Lord, but he did not listen, and Josiah was killed, and that was the beginning of the decline of Judah. Pontius Pilate, in John 19, 15, he said to the crowd, shall I crucify your king? Now, he was just a Roman guy who didn't know anything about the Lord or his law or his Messiah, but he was the voice of God warning the people in that moment. How does God give us warnings about his will when we're being headstrong and we're going crazy? First of all, through changing circumstances. Sometimes things in your life just shift. This is so weird. I've, I've gotten in my car to go there, and like every time it doesn't start, things like that happen. You've had things like that happen to you. Well, it's anecdotal evidence, yeah? But we all have had it, don't we? I was getting set to do this thing, and it just didn't work. 
You've got to be careful about looking at circumstances as a mark of God's will, but it can be. Next one, I'll just say sometimes profundity in art. You ever been watching a movie and a line comes out and you just go, whoa. That's like for me. <laughs> I think the Holy Ghost spoke to me through that. Or you're listening to music and you hear, it's not even a Christian worship song, but you're listening and you go, there's something to that. I'm not talking about like it's just wisdom that's profound because that's found everywhere, right? Solomon shared the, the wisdom of the Hebrews, the book of Proverbs tells us, or the Egyptians, excuse me. But when it's like for you, it's exactly for you. And like I've been praying about this and like I went to the movies and God like laid it on me. And you're, you know, your stuffy Christian friends are like, God doesn't speak that way. God spoke through a donkey, friends. Sometimes it's a pointed sermon. The exact thing you've been thinking about and praying about, and you show up at church, and that's what Tyler's talking about. And you go, oh, come on. You know, Did you call him? No, I didn't. Sometimes God will give you dreams and visions. I've had them. Not often, but I've had them. Many of you have had them in here. And many people even outside of the church will tell you about a dream they had that pointed them in the direction they needed to go. Once again, not always reliable, but God can do that. And then, of course, through people. People will rebuke you. The Bible says faithful are the wounds of a friend, but many are the kisses of an enemy. A friend will tell you when you're wrong. A friend will support me no matter what. No, a friend will help you do the right thing. I love you enough to risk your displeasure with me. I love you enough to make you angry at me. I love you enough to risk our friendship to tell you what's right. It is incumbent upon you to heed these warnings regardless their source or you are guilty before God. Oh, that's, that's, just, a, that's just a novel. That has nothing to do with Jesus. But if it pro provoked your heart to think on the thing that God needs you to do, then God will hold you responsible for it. The Holy Spirit speaks through donkeys sometimes, guys. Psalm 19, verses 9 through 11 says, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they, meaning the rules of the Lord, than gold, even much fine gold, Balaam, sweeter also than honey in the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them, by the rules of the Lord, is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Balaam should have known that. If you have learned the will of God, if you walk in the Spirit, then the warnings are going to come. You've got to listen to them. And even if you're like, I don't know if that was God or not, if it's pushing you towards righteousness, go with it. Just go with it. Verse 31 now. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. You know, it's kind of like... Hunter safety, don't take the safety off the gun unless you're ready to pull the trigger. Don't take the sword out of its sheath unless you mean to use it. And he bowed down and fell on his face. The angel of the Lord said to him, why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me <laughs> and turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely just now I would have killed you and let her live. And Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned. Yep. For I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Should have known though, right? Yeah. Now, therefore, if it is evil in your sight, I will turn back this guy. You think? And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with the men, but speak only the word that I tell you. So Balaam went on with the princes of Balak. 
God allows him to see. We see this also in 2 Kings 6, 17, where Elisha prays for his servant to be able to see the angelic host around them. And he sees many fiery chariots. But he sees an angel with a drawn sword. It's like that Doctor Who episode where you look at the statues that are coming to kill you, but when you see them, they're, they turn to stone. It's that kind of freaky thing. If you've not seen that one, leave that illustration alone. It's not a big deal. And he grovels on the ground before an angel. And the angel interrogates him about his donkey. And of course, the irony here is this guy is a professional seer, and he can't see what's right in front of him, but the donkey can And all the jokes you're running through in your head about the different terms of the word jackass are intended in the Hebrew also. That you're that stubborn, you're that idiotic, and you should have known better. That's why it chose this animal right here. You're supposed to be laughing at him. And he says, why? Because your way is perverse. Now, this word I thought was fascinating. Perverse, the Hebrew there is yarat. And it means not, it's interesting. I don't love the ESV right there. The NIV has reckless, which is better. But this word means precipitate. Now, precipitate means to be falling or rushing on. That's why we call it precipitation when it falls from the sky. It can be used to cast headlong or to fall forward. So it's like you are hurtling down this road 99 miles an hour and there's a dangerous turn coming up where there's an angel with a sword. I think the best way to translate this would be dangerous. That's the GTW translation, the Guy Tyler Warner translation. For your way is dangerous before me. He's treating the permission of God as license to do things his way. Balaam apologizes, and I'll go back if you really, really want me to. You'd think he'd hop on that donkey and be rushing the other way, but God allows him to continue. But the point is, he's going to go now, but he knows that there might very well be an angel standing at his, at his neck with a sword to his neck. He's not going to say anything that he's not supposed to. The fear of the Lord will enable you to go places you might not be able to go otherwise. Sometimes, even when God grants permission, our way forward is reckless. God said it was okay. Yeah, but you're acting recklessly and you're heading for a fall. It's dangerous. You're driving dangerously. Many people have the liberty to do something in Christ, but they treat it recklessly rather than faithfully. They see this permission that I have, this liberty in Christ that I have, as freedom to go all out and do it just like everybody else. And it becomes a point of calamity for them. For example, many Christians, I think very wisely, have decided we're not going to partake of alcohol. Now, there's no scriptural prohibition against that, And so there are some that have the liberty to do that. And they are equal before God in both of their decisions. However, some people say, since the Bible doesn't say it's a sin to drink, it's an excuse for me to go out and get loaded and party every weekend. That is not the same thing. Well, God says it's okay. No, he didn't. Not this, he didn't. Your way is dangerous. Well, the Bible doesn't say this is explicitly wrong. It's not wrong to... Many people have liberty to listen to different kinds of music or watch different kinds of movies, right? We're all equal in that before Christ. But some people, that is their stumbling block. And when they listen to it, it puts them in a mind frame they shouldn't be in. You know, and there are some people that just shouldn't be doing that because they're living recklessly. Even in liberty, you serve the Lord. 1 Samuel 12, Israel demanded a king because Samuel was dying and his sons were corrupt. Now, instead of saying, Samuel, perhaps your sons shouldn't succeed you and God should choose another judge for us, 
They said, we want a king, just like everybody else. And Samuel goes, no, you don't. Because a king is going to tax you. He's going to force you to do labor and build his palaces. He's going to take your sons to be his soldiers and his daughters, your daughters to be his wives. You're not going to like it. Yeah, it's difficult. This freedom you have is difficult. That will be worse. They say, we don't care. We want a king. So God gives him a king. And then in 1 Samuel 12, at the coronation, after they win their first big battle, God sends thunder and lightning from heaven to destroy that month's harvest to let them know God is displeased with them. And they said, would you like us to kill Saul? (laughs) Which it's like, no, 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 that's not what I'm telling you to do. 1 Samuel 12, 20, Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You've done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Like, yeah, this was wrong, but you know what? There it is. That's the bed you've made, but you better walk in it with righteousness. But I'm telling you, it's going to be hard for you to do it. It will be harder for you to serve the Lord this way than it was the other way. And this is the same thing for us. Same thing for Balaam. Yeah, it's, well, I can go there as long as I don't curse them. And God goes, yeah, but you're going to have lots of people and money and pretty girls telling you to go curse them. That's danger. That's the freedom that, that we have as Christians, as people. And at the end of the day, God does not compel people. And, you know, that's either your favorite or least favorite thing about God, depending on the circumstances. You don't want God to make you do anything, but you want him to make all the people you don't like stop doing the things you don't like. So when you come across somebody who has no interest in serving the Lord, but seems to have a really big deal about Christians being able to do more and more different things, watch out for somebody like that. If you're only wanting to do it because you want to and there's no thought of serving the Lord in the midst of it, it's carnal. God will not always stop you from doing what you want. So you've got to take extra care for yourself. Coming to the end, verse 36. When Balak heard that Balaam had come, he went out to meet him at the city of Moab on the border formed by the Arnon. The Arnon is a river at the extremity of the border. And Balak said to Balaam, did I not send to you to call to you? Why did you not come to me? Am I not able to honor you? And Balaam said to Balak, behold, I've come to you. I'm here now. What are you worried about? Have I now any power of my own to speak anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that must I speak. And Balak goes, well, we'll see about that. Then Balaam went with Balak, and they came to Kiriath-Huzot. And Balak sacrificed oxen and sheep and sent for Balaam and for the princes who were with him. And in the morning, Balak took Balaam and brought him up to Bamoth Baal, which is a mountain. And from there, he saw a fraction of the people. And we're going to leave it hanging there. And next time, we will be in the next chapters looking at the, uh, the oracles that Balaam gives. So they met at the Arnon River. You'll remember this is where Israel had camped. This is to the east of the promised land in what is called the Transjordan, meaning the over the Jordan section of land. The the boundary of where Moab then came across what was now Israelite territory, formerly the territory of Sihon, formerly still the territory of Moab. And this is where they're going to act in the next chapters. Balak complains about the delay, and Balaam's like, well, listen, I, I, I'm here, but I can't do anything that God said God didn't say. And he's maybe like darting around looking for that angel somewhere. <laughs> and they go through all the rituals. They do the sacrifices. These are not sacrifices to the Lord necessarily, uh, sacrifices common around the world. But they're preparing for the big day. They go on top of the mountain, and that's where we're going to have to leave it. God told Balaam not to go. Oh, God, what should I do? He goes, don't go. 
are you sure? Can I please go? He goes, you can go, but you're not going to be able to say anything I don't want you to say, all right, I'll go. All right, this is working out. He goes, no, I mean it now with a sword to his head. You are not going to say anything that I don't tell you to say. Okay, yeah, I got it. All right, no problem. <laughs> now he's there. God told him not to go. The best case scenario was don't go. He chose the highway. And he is now there with every temptation in the world to curse the children of Israel. He has decided not to sin, but has chosen to step into the den of temptation. He says, I won't curse them, but he goes through all the rituals of cursing all the way up to standing on the mountain. And the only thing is left is for him to pronounce a curse. Well, I won't in the moment, but why put yourself there? You see the temptation there? And in fact, Revelation 2.14 reveals to us, and so does uh, Numbers 31, verse 16, that Balaam will be unable to curse the children of Israel, but what he will do is he will tell Balak, if you want to curse these people, get all your hot girls to go out there and seduce the young men, take them to the temple, make them worship your gods, then God himself will curse them. Which is why in chapter 31, verse 8, Balaam will be killed when they finally fight against Midian. So he's put himself into this situation, and once again, he's not going to do, he's going to follow God's word to the exact letter, but completely violate the spirit of what God wanted him to do, and that sword is going to find him eventually. There are all manner of permissible situations for Christians that result in impossible temptations. Best to avoid them. Well, God said we could, or let's say, he didn't say we couldn't. All right, but there's going to be a lot of stuff there he said that you shouldn't do. Are you sure you want to be there? Yeah. Well, I'll go, but I won't smoke weed. Is everybody else going to be smoking weed? Well, yeah, but I won't. Sure you won't. Sure you won't. 2 Timothy 2.22 says, Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Stop trying to thwart God's will. Stop trying to find a loophole to do it your way. Delight in God's will. Say, Lord, it is the joy of my heart to do what you want. You sent your son Jesus to save me. What do you want from me? Remember what they said when Jesus would heal or deliver somebody? They'd say, I'll follow you wherever you go. That's the attitude to have. Not, okay, yeah, I'm a Christian, but there's so, life has so much to offer that I'm missing out on. So what, dude? You were going to hell. You were going to hell, and then you're going to get older, and you're going to say, well, it turns out there wasn't anything there anyway. All those people are miserable, but I'll find the joy in it. There's joy in the Lord. What do you need to go there for? Delight in the Lord's will, trusting that in the end, God's will will be the best thing for you. 